0: A zip code is so important because in D.C. where I live, most of my neighbors shop at a corner store and there are more varieties of cigarettes in that corner store than there are fruits and vegetables. That says something.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining Fresh Takes on Tech. This is our last episode of our season on The Last Mile. I want to thank Melissa Ackerman and Produce Alliance for sponsoring this season But also for all the people that she introduced me to, I met people I would have never met and had amazing conversations. So I really appreciate her help there. And for this last episode, we're zooming out a little bit and talking to a couple of IFPA superstars about their experience of the last mile in produce. Yes, Max, you're a superstar. (laughs) I'm speaking with Molly Van Loo, VP of Nutrition and Health at IFPA. Molly comes to us with a strong background in health and policy, working for a decade in nutrition issues in DC, first on Capitol Hill, and then in the nonprofit public health world. We also have Mats Toplitsky, chief science officer and superstar at IFPA. Max has a great background at USDA and also a professor at University of Florida. We'll be talking about a couple of issues around how we get more produce into more people's hands and stomachs, and what the what is the environmental impact of doing so. So welcome to the show, both of you.
0: Hey, you so excited. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Great to talk to you in this context. One no time listener,
0: first time participant.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Molly, let's get started uh, with you and talking about access. What are some of the main challenges in getting more produce into the hands of people who need healthier food?
2: Sure, so it's really dependent upon the individual and it's very much circumstantial. That being said, we can kind of put people in certain categories, but there's a number of different barriers that exist and a lot of it can be distilled down to people's zip codes. So you certainly have an access issue for some, and that's first and foremost, if you don't have proximity to a retailer, be it delivery or brick and mortar, that's an immediate challenge. Cost and resources to purchase fruits and vegetables is certainly can be a challenge. Um, and that's not necessarily tied to just the cost of the produce. And that's something that comes up all the time. Of It's easy to say that fresh produce is really expensive, and I think it's a more complex issue than that. That's related to perishability. That's related to if you know how to prepare it, if it tastes delicious, if you feel as if when you're food insecure, there's often a very real response that you want to make sure that every single calorie that you put in your body is going to be consumed or, or if you're giving to your kids, it's going to be consumed and then it's going to keep you full. And often people go to really calorie dense items when they're doing that. So there are barriers around that. Um, and then time, preparing fruits and vegetables. That Now that's not always a barrier and a lot of fruit and increasingly more vegetables are ready to eat, but that can be um, a real barrier or a perceived barrier.
0: Right. A zip code is so important because in DC where I live, Most of my neighbors shop at a corner store, and there are more varieties of cigarettes in that corner store than there are fruits and vegetables. And um, that says something. And those cigarettes are plenty expensive, I (laughs) promise you. Another issue that I think we need to keep in mind is you know, 70% of us of Americans are overweight or obese, and then on the flip side, 37 million Americans live in food insecure households. And in fact, it's a Venn diagram. So people who are most nutritionally insecure. They also at the higher risk of uh, malnutrition and obesity and uh, poverty. So access zip code these are complicated issues.
2: Yeah, and DC is a Max and I live in Washington DC. Both of us, but we live in different parts of the city. And uh, DC's broken up into quadrants thanks to Pierre L'Enfant. Um, and I'm in the northwest quadrant, and we have an abundance of grocery stores. I mean, within a mile there's a Whole Foods, there's a Giant, there's a Wegman's, the Lytles coming in, there's organic markets, there's an abundance. And that's directly tied to to health outcomes. And it's not just about, I want to be clear, it's not just about access to the physical retail grocery store. When you also look at different quadrants in DC, there's systemic issues um, and poverty and you know violence and things that are other barriers that, that folks don't necessarily think about it. It's not just the grocery store, but, you know, in one portion of Ward of DC, or several Wards of DC, there's no kind of traditional brick and mortar grocery stores.
1: So what strategies can we use to increase the availability and affordability of fresh produce in these underserved communities that you've identified?
2: Sure. So I have a bias towards policy, because that's what it (laughs) is. Funny that. uh, but I really do think that in order to address these issues, you have to look at it systemically. And um, certainly in our personal lives, we can be doing things. But if we're not looking at, you know, I say a million miles at a time, you could, you could get smaller than that. Then we're falling short. There's a number of different policy strategies. And SNAP, or some folks know that um, traditionally as food stamps, is really the most efficient way to get food to people.
1: Is that working? Do you think that's working for people?
2: It's working. It's a great question. It's working in addressing food insecurity. Before we had food stamps, we saw really severe malnutrition in this country in ways that we don't really see anymore that you see in more developing countries. So we've really addressed food insecurity. The problem is we haven't addressed nutrition security Mm. and dietary quality within SNAP. So while we don't have really acute hunger issues, even though hunger still does persist in pockets within this country, we really have effectively addressed that because SNAP runs through retail. And it's a pretty seamless option you get um, if you qualify a monthly allotment of money to be to spent on any food of your choice outside of hot foods and, and alcohol. But other than that, you can buy anything you want. So that's a really efficient way to do it at the retail level. It's not necessarily the best way to do it from um, a dietary quality perspective. And that's not limited to those who are low income. If you look at the way all Americans eat, we are woefully following short. But when you then layer on food insecurity and having a hard time making ends meet, um, it gets more challenging specifically when you look at fruits and vegetable purchases. So SNAP is the most effective way but there are other programs school meals the WIC program mm. USDA procurement for food banks there are a lot of different levers that get people food
1: What do you see could be so as you've said I mean a lot of that is kind of hitting the needed calorie bar what are some of the policy ways that might be possible to get more produce to people some policy solutions
2: Yeah so really WIC is the what we often call the crown jewel in federal nutrition programs. And that is a program that's for pregnant and postpartum individuals, as well as children five and under. And they get a specific food package relative to their needs. So they go into a WIC clinic and they're prescribed a literal food package. And as part of that, they're getting a monthly allotment for fruits and vegetables of their choice. Now, that's something that for a decade, was stuck at $9 a month for kids and $11 a month for women. So you can imagine that didn't go far. We lobbied really hard during COVID to get that increased and we're successful at that. And now we're waiting on USDA to make that food package update final. So right now kids are getting $25 a month and women are getting up to $48 a month. And the health outcomes are huge and evident in that program. So given that we
1: at IFPA, all three of us, work across the whole supply chain, are we working with producers to increase the supply of fresh produce to underserved communities? Are you aware of programs that we're working on with that or other parts of the association is working on?
2: So it's interesting to use the word supply because there's different ways you can think about that. And we hear it in policy a lot of if we just like increase the supply of fruits and vegetables, we really have a demand <laughs> problem. We don't have a supply problem, in my opinion. Oh, uh, interesting perspective, yeah. Because I'm always like hesitant when people are like, if we just created more to bring the cost down to fruits and vegetables, then more people would buy them. And it is way more complicated than that. But certainly the programs like SNAP and WIC and produce prescriptions, which I know you've talked about previously, we haven't today. It's not direct from the grower in most cases. Um, it's obviously going through the supply chain, but those are the biggest dollar amounts in terms of where I see growers ultimately are going to benefit from that. But there are other areas too, like USDA procurement, where there's an opportunity for USDA to buy food directly, fruits and vegetables directly from growers right now, because it's an antiquated system. USDA is really only buying five bulk commodities, (laughs) um, which is pretty wild. And so there's so much more we could be doing there in terms of USDA purchasing fruits and vegetables and making them available to people who need them. So that would be in food banks and YMCAs, Boys and Girls Clubs, faith-based organizations. Now that is, it's a piece of the puzzle. I don't want to overstate that because food banks should be a last resort for people that we shouldn't have to go to food banks to get food if they're food insecure, but it does represent an area where
0: there's room for improvement. And Vani, I think one of the important aspects of this conversation is de-risking of the last mile. We started this conversation by talking about the zip codes and different attributes of each zip code. And I think we mostly have figured out how to get fruits and vegetables to big retail and food service establishments. We're still struggling to figure out what are the alternative ways of distributing nutritious foods and fresh fruits and vegetables are primary among them. One of the reasons why some of the smaller stores don't carry fresh produce is because of perishability issues. And there are certainly a number of member companies who are working on understanding the supply chain and sort of coming up with smart packaging or improving the whole chain. So as IFPA, I think we're contributing uniquely to not just grow food, but also supply technologies for de-risking of this last mile. And federal programs and state programs are, critical in making sure that there's this safety net, both for the consumers, but also for, the, for those who sell fresh produce, so that if the supply demand is out of balance, the federal government can step in and make sure that the supply chain is robust and um, you know, we can continue to l- deliver fresh produce to those who need it.
1: That, that's a great point. What are some other initiatives or programs that either of you have seen implemented that have been successful in increasing access to healthy produce?
0: Double Up Bucks, a program that was very important, near and dear to me when I was at USDA. I think it's a unique opportunity to um, build public-private partnerships. Produce Prescription, certainly a great example. And we just need to continue to be more creative as we think about incentivizing consumption
2: so the program that max talked about uh double up bucks it's formally called the GusNet program within the Farm Bill, and it's timely because Congress is considering that it is a, um, and that program is designed, uh, and folks may know it by different names. If you are a SNAP consumer, you can, if you buy, for example, $6 worth of fruits and vegetables, you can get $6 worth of fruits and vegetables to either redeem at that time or, or come back and redeem them at a later date. It has been shown to increase fruit and vegetable consumption. Some of the challenges right now are scalability because it requires a nonprofit to partner with the retail. So there's a lot of work to do that, and the technology can be different across projects. And it's really only available to a small percentage of SNAP consumers right now. So. In this next farm bill, we're looking at what are the ways that we can scale. And a lot of this, of course, comes down to technology. So there are a number of states that would like to do this through their SNAP agencies. So when you get a SNAP EBT card, it's already embedded that incentive on the card versus, you know, some places they're using tokens, some places they're using coupons. And you can imagine that it's just a little bit harder. It's really clunky to implement, but then it can be really hard to redeem. And I know in your previous conversations with Josh and others around if if the user experience isn't amazing and sometimes perfect, um, it's really hard to execute these programs. So there are amazing programs that are existing in this space, but we do need to figure out how to scale those and embed the technology. And you know, something that we've talked about that is a little bit different than the government program is much like the WIC program that I just talked about. What if you just had a standalone fruit and vegetable benefit? So you didn't have to earn more, or figure out how you redeem it the next time you just get a monthly allotment. The problem with that, I'm using quotes that people can't see, is that that costs money, right? That costs a lot of money when you think about there are more than 40 million Americans on SNAP. So it will take um, a lot of political courage to be willing to say that um, we should be adding a certain amount each month for people to spend on fruits and vegetables. And then you get all the other food groups that say, what about us? What about
1: dairy? What about everything else? Yeah, I can imagine.
2: (laughs) You know,
0: the unique thing about fruits and vegetables is that there's such a diversity of tastes and ways to prepare. And I want to highlight programs like Brighter Bites and uh, you know Common Threads, where they bring these interesting foods, uh, fruits and vegetables primarily, into classrooms, and then they teach kids and their parents how to cook them so that, number one, they can capitalize fully on the nutritional potential. Number two, they can find fruits and vegetables that are in season in the local supermarkets, and also you know economical and exciting. I didn't know for the longest time how to make jicama. And it took me a while to figure it out. But I'm sure there are kids who grow up who don't know how to prepare.
1: What do you do with Hicama? I just eat it raw in a salad. Do you cook it? <laughs> no. Okay. So apparently next. But
0: it was so intimidating to look at that food, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And just even to know even to know what to do with it. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And I imagine there are kids who don't know how to, you know, fix radishes or turnips. Well, educating consumers and catching them while they're still young. Yeah. I think those are critical.
2: And cultural relevancy to that point is so important. And Curtis Alliance does an amazing job with this. But we saw this during the Farmers to Families Food Box program that occurred during COVID of it's really important. You can't just, I mean, you can just provide whatever produce you want, but the areas where it worked best, there were, Bay Cities Produce was one of the entities that got a contract and they were providing boxes in San Francisco. And in some of the Asian communities, they were providing fruits and vegetables that were very specific to their culture, right? But if you would have dropped that box off, in Nebraska, they would say, what am I supposed to do with this? But you didn't have to explain that into the communities that were receiving it. So it's really important to take, again, the user experience into consideration of, we need a balance of like the dietary guidelines says a wide variety, but we also have to appreciate that, you know, food is part of people's cultures and all fruits and vegetables are going to be good for you, right? So what are the fruits and vegetables that make sense for the communities that we're aiming to serve.
1: So I know there's a a number of programs out there that are trying to do work with both insurance companies and doctors and retailers and do some of these prescription programs. And most of those are not, they're not policies through the government. There are other individual companies that are working on that. So how, how do you see those programs working and how do you see that going in with policy? And can we integrate those so that, you know, we get even a bigger boost of those types of um, prescriptions?
2: Yeah, so this, to me, is the most exciting opportunity. Um, And if we get it right, I really do think it's going to be revolutionary. So some of those programs are tied to the government, or at least got funding, it just doesn't feel that way. So within the farm bill, they've funded around 100 produce prescription programs. But then under Medicare Advantage, there's thousands Of pilots that are going on. So they might not be completely funded by the government, but they're spurred by that. But what's really interesting is, so last September, the White House hosted their historic White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health. Something that we were pushing for was for Medicare to cover fruits and vegetables as a benefit the same way they do as pharmaceutical drugs appreciating that it's not designed to be a replacement. I mean, hopefully we get to the point where, where people don't need certain pharmaceuticals, but really to be complementary. And what the White House strategy came out and said that they weren't ready to do Medicare essentially yet. And, the re- and people get often questioned why Medicare, and that's because the federal government has jurisdiction over coverage there. And then often private insurers follow whatever Medicare and Medicaid is doing. Um, but the White House said is that if states want to pilot covering food interventions, including produce prescriptions, that they will approve that process. So there are about five states right now that are doing that, six more or so in the hopper. And there's a lot of effort around trying to get more states to approve those waivers. So once that starts, as more and more states adopt these kind of strategies, um Enforcement practices, I think we'll see the federal government revisit. And they have already committed the the VA, Veteran Affairs and Indian Health Services, both fully integrated federal health systems, um, have also committed to doing produce prescription pilots. Um, So once we get the data there, are confident that they will adopt that as well. But again, that's really going to take technology and the user experience is going to be the biggest thing. The nice thing, and I'm simplifying this, is that unlike what we talked about in SNAP, costs and resources aren't quite the same because if you treat it as a covered benefit, it's just integrated into healthcare costs versus for SNAP or WIC, we need to ask Congress for money essentially every single year to do that. And it's just more integrated into the healthcare system because you're seeing immediate healthcare cost if people are eating uh, or relatively immediate healthcare savings if people are adopting better dietary quality
1: so what do you see is if you could see the future or, or wave your magic wand what are the best systems and private uh public partnerships that are going to continue to make this work to get more produce to people
2: well, we'd love to see advocacy. I wouldn't be good at my job if I didn't say that people should be asking <laughs> the, the federal government to be more engaged in this. But the public-private partnership is really you know, having the technology piece come to the table, healthcare systems come to the table, and they are but continuing to do that to figure out how to do this seamlessly. So it's not just about, you know, how you get the money to people to redeem. That's a piece of it. But it's also what are the billing codes to take the 15 minutes to talk to a patient about food interventions and all of those things that are barriers to actually executing something like this. Everybody needs to come together and kind of figure out what that looks like.
1: Great. Switching gears a little bit. And looking kind of a, at another aspect of last mile, um, Max, what do you think the environmental impacts are associated with last mile of food
0: distribution? Well, that's a good question. And again, it depends on where we're distributing food, where the food is grown. There's a lot of interest in uh, indoor ag as a way to sort of provide an alternative to field growing. You know, in some places in the desert, in the Middle East, for example, we're seeing that this is probably one of the better approaches for growing fresh produce. How can that compete with field grown? I don't yet know. But we're also talking about the cost of um, packaging and then environmental footprint of packaging. There is a movement in Europe to toward um, reusable packaging. But I think we need to sort out, if we're going to go to reusable packaging, what is the reverse logistic of that look like? How we're going to truck that reusable packaging and um, what is going to be the carbon footprint of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, what's the carbon impact if you're moving things around? That's that's an issue as well. Are there ways? Are we measuring what the impact is? Do we even know really what last mile impacts? Is anyone looking at that?
0: I'm sure there is a way to model that. I just haven't kept up with. Uh,
1: yeah, what what it would be. So we talked about more sustainable packaging practices and what that might look like. What are some ev- other efforts to reduce waste? Because when you look at the whole carbon footprint of produce, the amount of waste you know, that we have is a, a huge part of that. It's, it's, it's not putting the food in the truck. It's if the food ends up in the garbage can. And so ev- all the energy that we use to produce that food um, goes nowhere. So what are some things that we're looking at to reduce waste?
0: The amount of food that's wasted is just staggering, shocking. On average, a third of... All food in the US is lost to wasted. For some fresh produce items, it's up to 70%. So um, 70% of leafy greens that are already harvested, they don't end up in the stomach. And to me, this is just terrifying. So we just finished a special issue of Current Opinions in Biotechnology that focused entirely on biologically inspired approaches for reducing loss and waste of uh, fresh produce. And the options there are... You know, in addition to smart packaging, and in addition to various types of polymer coatings, you know, thinking about different types of uh, plant breeding. And I know, I know, we've talked about the flavor saver tomato as a, as a full start forever, but you know, there are some new exciting options. The purple tomato that everybody's talking about has an extended shelf life just because of all the other compounds in it that are the purple pigments, in addition to being highly nutritious, they also provide an extended shelf life. I think it's also important to think about sort of blemishes that damage consumer perceptions, like browning of lettuce. You know, it's not or you know, pinking of lettuce. It's not it's not necessarily you know detrimental to the quality of the product, but consumers just don't like it. And again, there are varieties on the market that brown and pink less. There are other treatments that we can incorporate that will reduced at brownian baking. so a lot of exciting new things that are happening in the food loss and waste space but I think as it relates to the last mile, it's important that all the innovation that scientists are coming up with is not wasted in that last mile. What I mean by that is if we know that a variety can last longer on the shelves is going to be you know staged later to be shipped and the consumers still end up with three good days. That's not good enough. So we need to make sure that the supply chain, the logistics, keeps up with uh, innovation.
1: Yeah, I think that's, we hear people talking about that a lot when they have, when they're looking at either varieties or different types of technologies that are going to improve, you know, they don't want that to get sucked up by the supply chain so that there really isn't, you know, a freshness improvement for the consumer. So I think that is something that a lot of people are looking
0: at. You know, another interesting intersection is between food loss, waste, production, and labor. We've built our crop production system on determinate tomato varieties. They ripen once, we harvest them, and then the harvesting crews, they move to you know a different part of country. And it's not just tomatoes, it's a lot of berries and um, other crops that were designed bred that way. But what if we rethink... So instead of harvesting once or creating varieties that can only be harvested once, we spread out the harvest so that now we can have a permanent labor force, not a migratory labor force, that's potentially more of of an attractive career. And we may also avoid some of these peaks and valleys and pricing and availability. So um, there are lots of options on the table to alleviate the last mile congestion, to think about um, labor issues. We just need to continue to be creative as we think about these big, wicked problems. Mm -hmm.
1: What role do you think renewable energy sources could play in
0: this? That's a good question. You know, as we're seeing more and more charging stations for electrical cars, you know, electrical cars are now in the mainstream. Now, how can we capitalize on that for distribution? Uh, Molly remembers a couple of months, a couple of years ago, we had these little robots buzzing around the city. As an attempt to try to map out their routes so that it could be distributed food. I don't see them anymore. So I don't know if it was a failed attempt or just didn't get enough.
1: I think that company probably went bankrupt. And- <laughs> so I don't know if anyone else stepped in because we I had them in my neighborhood too, and they're just kind of gone, you know. But it's I mean, it'll come back, right? But that was that was the first try.
0: But they seem to be running off of a solid battery. You know, these <laughs> little terrifying robots that are plucking uprising. <laughs> Oh. what they' were doing and the renewable energy I think is also interesting because it's not just electric it's not just the solar power but it's the you know the entire grid. I have a solar panel in my house, so I feed it back I feed the energy back into the grid so we just need to think about it as an entire supply chain. one robot running off a solar panel is not going to make it dead
1: yeah, so what other possible solutions do you think there might be um, in this area of a more sustainable last mile what what technologies might we see coming
0: so supply chain is complicated I, I don't need to uh, tell you that and uh, <laughs> the improving distribution routes, so making the routes more amenable to um, getting to smaller markets. one of the, the podcasts this season, um, one of your guests was talking about these school buses that are retrofitted to distribute fresh produce to communities. is it scalable we don't know but does everything need to scale? I think that's another good question. You know, not every retail operation needs to be a Walmart or a Costco. There should be plenty of options for smaller mom and pop, innovative distribution options. And, and certainly thinking about how we can value nutritional content of foods and incentivizing retailers as well to carry these um, highly nutritious um, options.
2: And one um, strategy that was used during the Farmers and Families, the food box program, um, because when we talk about improving uh, dietary quality options and the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables at food banks and kind of community centers, one of the first things that you hear is that they don't have kind of the cold storage infrastructure. And while certainly You know, we want to make sure that those entities have that if they want it Um, for really small ones in particular. Like that's a lot to ask because then you're dealing with I mean, it's expensive and then you're dealing with upkeep of it. And one of the strategies that was used during Farmers to Families was that the fresh produce distributor just cooled up and there was like a day or a half day where you could come and get the produce. Like a food truck, right? <laughs> like like a truck, right? And again, like that's not the solution to everything because you're saying, you know, if you want fresh produce, if you can come Tuesday from 10 to 2, it's yours, but it is a strategy, right? Like, Because we're not going to be able to snap our fingers and have every single entity that wants to distribute fresh produce have these magnificent fresh or cold storage facilities but it is something that you can do in the interim say we have there's this infrastructure that exists and if you factor that into the price that you're paying usda across the supply chain that's definitely an option
0: you know another thing in addition to that is the small community gardens and um, some people say well it's a competition so if you know if i have a plot I will not be buying vegetables from traditional retailers, and I think it's a it's a fallacy. You know, a three by five plot is not going to supply enough fruits and vegetables for a family. But what it does, it creates this pattern where consumers are getting used to bringing some fruits and vegetables, having something green on their plate. And when it's off season, then they're thinking, well, I need something green on my plate, and that you know, playing the garden and pluck weeds number one they learn the value of that food and they'll think twice about it before they waste uh, fresh produce but they also build this excitement and uh, you know immediacy of knowledge of uh, fresh produce so I don't think we should discount these community gardens and find ways to you know support where they exist
2: I just got my plot this morning for my community garden <laughs>
0: there you go
2: a lot of work though, like it's again, it's another piece of the puzzle because sometimes people offer up community gardens, and I believe that everyone who wants the public spaces for this are hugely important for those who want it. But that's sometimes brought up as a singular solution for people, especially in urban areas that are food insecure. And anybody talk about appreciation for growing, like it's a ton of work, right? So if you're working to part-time jobs, you know, have kids. It's a luxury. It's not something people can do. Molly, what are you planning to grow? Um, I'm, well, I have a two-year-old, so I'm managing my expectations for um, how often I can be there. So I'm just going to start with herbs and probably tomatoes and zucchini, and we'll see how that goes. Zucchini
0: is a gift that keeps on giving the entire summer. Know.
2: I know. Yeah. Max, what are you
1: growing this year? You have lots that you
0: grow. All right, so I put in another raised bed. So I'm up to six raised beds right now. and the- How do you
1: have room for that in D.C.? That's crazy.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that's why I'm not in a fancy quadrant as Molly
2: said. <laughs> that's why I'm in the community garden. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I have tomatoes. I have wheats. I have carrots. I have some cabbage and eggplants and peppers are ready to go in. Wow well i'm I have I'm less ambitious.
1: I have one raised bed, and uh, I found last year I tried to grow tomatoes in it, and I just couldn't keep squirrels and rats out. And so I've decided this year what I use most and what helps me. I mean, I can buy such great fresh stuff that I'm just gonna do mostly herbs, I think, because that that has me waste a lot less food because if i if I buy parsley and don't use it, you know, use the whole thing. And so by growing parsley or or growing basil or growing things that I end up throwing away because I don't use them all or freeze them and then throwing them away, I'm so I doing herbs mostly this year, you
0: know my grandmother whenever she would buy much like, parsley, she would just cut it up and mix it with coarse salt and just kept it in the fridge that way and oh. it forever
1: That's very cool, but a lot longer than just having it in the bag i well, I'll try that that's great yeah very cool. Well, listeners of this podcast have gotten all sorts of tips here. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank both of you so much for having this conversation and I will see you both very soon. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Lani. Thank
1: yeah. you. have been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology.
2: Thank you for listening. Until next time.